You go to therapy for that? I wrote stories. That's that's therapy, right? <laughs> therapy. <laughs> no, I journaled. <laughs> Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, John, it's your turn. What'd you pick? Uh, I picked a story by Ernest Hemingway called The Snows of Kilimanjaro. He thought about alone in Constantinople that time, having quarreled in Paris before he had gone out. He had hoard the whole time, and then, when that was over, and he had failed to kill his loneliness, but only made it worse, he had written her, the first one, the one who left him, a letter telling her how he had never been able to kill it, how, when he thought he saw her outside the regions one time, it made him go all faint and sick inside, and that he would follow a woman who looked like her in some way, along the boulevard, afraid to see it was not she, afraid to lose the feeling it gave him, how everyone he had slept with had only made him miss her more, how what she had done could never matter since he knew he could not cure himself of loving her. He wrote this letter at the club, cold sober, and mailed it to New York, asking her to write him at the office in Paris. That seemed safe, and that night missing her so much, it made him feel hollow sick inside. He wandered up past Maxim's, picked a girl up, and took her out to supper. He had gone to a place to dance with her afterward. She danced badly, and left her for a hot Armenian slut that swung her belly against him so it almost scalded. He took her away from a British gunner subaltern after a row. The gunner asked him outside, and they fought in the street on the cobbles in the dark. He'd hit him twice, hard, on the side of the jaw, and when he didn't go down, he knew he was in for a fight. The gunner hit him in the body, then beside his eye. He swung with his left again and landed, and the gunner fell on him and grabbed his coat and tore the sleeve off, and he clubbed him twice behind the ear and then smashed him with his right as he pushed him away. When the gunner went down, his head hit first, and he ran with the girl because they heard the MPs coming. They got into a taxi and drove out to Rimali Hissa along the Bosphorus and around and back in the cool night and went to bed and she felt as overripe as she looked but smooth rose petal syrupy smooth bellied big breasted and needed no pillow under her buttocks and he left her before she was awake looking blousy enough in the first daylight and turned up at the Para Palace with a black eye carrying his coat because one sleeve was missing that same night he left for Anatolia and he remembered later on that trip riding all day through fields of the poppies that they raised for opium and how strange it made you feel finally and all the distances seemed wrong to where they had made the attack with the newly arrived Constantine officers that did not know a goddamn thing and the artillery had fired into the troops and the British observer had cried like a child. That was the day he'd first seen dead men wearing white ballet skirts and upturned shoes with pompons on them. The Turks had come steadily and lumpily and he had seen the skirted men running and the officers shooting into them and running them themselves and he and the British observer had run too until his lungs ached and his mouth was full of the taste of pennies and they stopped behind some rocks and there were the Turks coming as lumpily as ever. Later he had seen the things that he could never think of and later still he had seen much worse. So when he got back to Paris that time he could not talk about it or stand to have it mentioned and there in the cafe as he passed was that American poet with a pile of saucers in front of him and a stupid look on his potato face talking about the Dada movement with the Romanian who said his name was Tristan Tsara, who always wore a monocle and had a headache, and back at the apartment with his wife that now he loved again, the quarrel all over, 
The madness all over. Glad to be home. The office sent his mail up to the flat. So then the letter in answer to the one he'd written came in on a platter one morning. And when he saw the handwriting, he went cold all over and tried to slip the letter underneath another. But his wife said, who is that letter from, dear? And that was the end of the beginning of that. He remembered the good times with them all and the quarrels. They always picked the finest places to have the quarrels. And why had they always quarreled when he was feeling best? He had never written any of that because at first he never wanted to hurt anyone. And then it seemed as though there was enough to write without it. But he had always thought that he would write it finally. There was so much to write. He had seen the world change, not just the events, although he had seen many of them and had watched the people, but he had seen the subtler change and he could remember how the people were at different times. He had been in it and he had watched it and it was his duty to write of it, but now he never would. So, John, why'd you pick that story? I kind of thinking we should do Hemingway eventually. And um, I didn't ever want it to do the Hills like White Elephant story, which is like the obvious one to do. I just didn't think there'd be enough to say about it. So I finally was like, well, let me find a better, like not a better, but like another one. And uh, I was like, we'll just do this one. It's long and it's interesting. And um, I'm sure there's a lot we could say about it. But it's also, you know, it's another one of his best. Um, a lot of the thoughts that I developed after reading this story were why I'm over Hemingway. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, there's there's problem. Yeah, he's problematic. <laughs> yeah. But um, the one thing that I realized I could say that was probably like jumping to my takeaway was this idea of like an unreliable narrator. A lot of times when we talk about that, I think we're talking about someone that is less than honest with the reader, you know, or maybe like you're reading a story from the point of view of like the villain right and they're not revealing everything to you they're or like lying to you yeah they're lying to you or they're like they lack self-awareness and yeah. like one of the things about a lot of Hemingway's stuff is that we're supposed to think he's like somehow a good guy because he's so self-aware <laughs> He's like, I'm a terrible human. It's like, <laughs> oh, you poor man. But what makes him unreliable, at least in this story, or like what what um, we're playing with in this story and what I think we could like explore as a takeaway is a situation where the narrator becomes unreliable because of like this medical episode, right? So we don't know at the end there, like when he is or isn't hallucinating. We have this like whole ending where we think that he's been rescued and then we come to find out that he wasn't. We've definitely seen this in other works. I can't think of one that we've done in the sh- on the podcast, but we've all come across this, right? Where maybe it's like a writer or a narrator who's on drugs, even. The idea of like hallucination is not new. I don't think this is an unreliable narrator. I think the point of view character isn't necessarily experiencing reality in the way that it's actually happening. And then this is in third person. So we think of the narrator as a third person, like as somebody else who's talking about him but who somehow as a narrator knows his interior thoughts and knows what he's thinking and seeing yeah. and experiencing and feeling. It's, it's a complicated, it's so, it's such a, cause it's so close when you get to that third person limited kind of internal point of view, the narrator, like the, um, the speaker of the words and the character who's being described become almost the same. It, it gets so close together that you kind of lose track of who's who. And so, you know, because they're so close, the unreliability of the character's experience because they don't know what she's the what the woman is thinking and they don't know they think they're on an airplane at some point and they're really not it's unreliable in that way because it is his experience not necessarily it's not like the narrator's like let me tell you about joe smith but i won't tell you this (laughs) yeah so maybe that's a bad way to describe it but whatever this device is is something that doesn't usually occur to me when i'm writing it i don't usually think to myself i'm gonna like pull one over on the reader by like doing this thing where and then 
he woke up from a dream. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. we, we always talk about that being kind of like uh, disappointing. It's often used for cheap effect. Yes. It's usually just kind of like, well, why did I bother? Um, yeah. But in a situation like this, where it's he's like delirious because it's he's facing death, which is a situation where even if we're not going to die of gangrene on a safari with our beautiful but horrible wife, then maybe we can like at least consider what it's going to be like to die slowly you know be be like in and out of this reality as like your body fails you and your mind follows and then to think about what you might be fixated on in those moments right not just the fact that you're dying but in his case all of the things you regret sort of and specifically in his case what you wish you would have written about i sincerely hope that's not what i'm thinking about when i'm dying <laughs> 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 I'm fearful that some of the stuff I will, will have failed to write will come across my mind as I die too. And I can't help it. I will think of that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is okay. I don't want to like shit on Ernest Hemingway, but this is why I'm kind of over it. It's like, it's usually the same guy. It's usually the same character over and over and over. And, and it's, it's very autobiographical. Yeah. It's Ernest in every story. Which is disappointing. I've always found it disappointing when writers write about themselves. And I know that that's advice that gets given to young writers is like, right. It's the way it write what you know is interpreted it is basically write about yourself and to a certain stretch. extent you have to yeah <laughs> but he yeah. like he came from a journalism background and so when he wrote his short fiction it very much kind yeah. of patterned off of what he knew as right. very concretely as his yeah. own experience i think like i don't want this conversation to necessarily devolve but like but, th <laughs> but this but this is like my strongest reaction to to this was just like when i think about my first introductions to ernest hemingway like you know like old man in the sea and all this kind of shit and then like when I got older, like reading like by myself, like a movable feast or whatever this is. Like when you do it like kind of piecemeal that way and maybe by accident or on purpose picks stories that are as wildly different as his body of works can possibly be. What you're mostly learning and taking away is that we all love on some level or recognize this style of writing. You know, like Ernest Hemingway's style of writing is so, so like concrete, you know? When we think about like, yeah. we've, we've talked about this like as a writing prompt, like if I were to take one of my own stories and then and like rewrite it in the style of Ernest Hemingway. You know, I would do these like clipped short sentences and like this idea that I'm like super self-aware, but I don't <laughs> put these things into practice. There'd be like these certain elements that you just would just instinctively copy. So when you read Ernest Hemingway, like I said, here and there over the course of your life, you're like, oh yeah, this guy again, this is good stuff. And then when you read it more and more, <laughs> or when you pick up a short story like this and you think to yourself like, oh, Ernest Hemingway, he sometimes wrote short stories. Like, let's read this one. Like, this should be good. And then it's, this was extremely disappointing for me because he basically takes the same character and puts him in a new setting, right? He's not like doing the running of the bowls or whatever whatever story that was. And he's not on a boat catching a fish, you know? Instead, he's on an African safari. But he's the same fucking guy. And it's because Ernest Hemingway did all these things in his real life, you know, right? Like whether through journalism or because he had money and he could like do these trips and things. You mentioned the, um, the Hemingway style. It reminded right. me of this book by David Lodge called thinks where um somebody in the story is writing a fiction workshop and uh his students are given the task of writing in the style of someone else it's kind of like a cross there's a cognitive science element and a fiction writing element um there's a, a famous essay by uh thomas nagel called um what is it like to be a bat and so i think the prompt was something like write a 
a story in the style of such and such author, like about the experience of being a bat or something like that. And so those little <laughs> excerpts, which I'm sure David Lodge himself wrote all these excerpts, but he like wrote these, I, I don't, I'm not going to find them in this book, but he wrote all these things like in the different, like there's a Henry James one. There's probably a Hemingway one. I don't remember all of That's them, awesome. but as you're reading them, you can tell you're like, Oh, this is Henry James. This is so-and-so. Yeah. This is so-and-so. Yeah. It's very obvious. He doesn't even have to label them. Um, yeah. It's a really fascinating fact about our reading that you can identify those styles so readily. Yes. Even in, in, like a, as a copied version, like they have something to them. So but right. that was one of the things that one of the reasons I wanted to pick this story, the, the Kilimanjaro story was because like, like you said, all of his stories, they have the same character. Basically, they, you know, it's all this stuff. And it's always in his Hemingway style with, um, you know, he had that list of rules from his newspaper days, like no adjectives and all this stuff. Yeah. Like, and then the, the dialogue is most of the stories in the dialogue is like really tight on the description. But then he, it's these italicized sections where it's like his thought process. It's all of a sudden, let's dive into what he's thinking. It's kind of like a stream of consciousness thing that like a lot of people were doing back at the beginning of that cent- of last century. You know, James Joyce with uh, Ulysses. Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, I think was the story. A lot of the modernists were trying this, like, how do we represent stream of consciousness? And I feel like this is almost like Hemingway's version of that. Like, he's like, now in his mind, he saw a railway station and, and it just goes through this, like, chain of connected thoughts. Because as he's dying, what we get is like the conversation he has with the uh, the woman he's with, and then these digressions into his memories and all the yeah. stories he wished he had written. And it's those digressions into those memories that are in those stream of consciousness style, which is an interesting style to see done in the Hemingway way. Like obviously yeah. it's him himself doing it. Stream of consciousness written by Hemingway is an interesting form, <laughs> interesting um, style. When you start reading the story, you don't necessarily know that the entirety of the plot is going to be that he does die. You know, yeah. I think I, like because I started reading it and I was like, maybe this is going to be like some of these other stories that he writes where like a lot really happens, you know, like, I don't know. I feel like the bulk is a lot of these stories are conversations among these characters, right? Yeah. That's like Hills, like White Elephants was just a conversation. There's not yeah. that extra stuff, which is why it's like, there's not much else to say about it. Yeah. So he does like those dialogues really well where these characters are like honest with each other, mean to each other, whatever. And they're like talking about real things. But like they usually move from like exciting setting to exciting setting or like the next like plot point is like and then they decide to get drinks (laughs) and then they decide to get dinner. They they go fishing. They go to the bullfight. Yeah. It's like it's like a friend trip or something. It, yeah. it, like it's like a bachelor party in every story. And then they decided to go get strippers. But anyway, like <laughs> for this one, you don't really know that that's not going to happen. You don't really realize until the very end that like this story is very much contained to like him laying on his cot. And so yeah, yeah it is interesting yeah. that like he still accomplishes what he always accomplishes, which is like maybe he's not always doing like the stream of consciousness, but he he's still hitting all the same points. Well, like you said, it's the same character, but yeah, we're getting a different view on. But him. he's he, usually like. Like these things come out because we see him getting the strippers and instead yes. he's just really reflecting on the fact that he did it a bunch like the section that you read he's like and then he traded her for this other slut it's like oh my god Ernest you're such a dick 
I had one thought about the ending and I wonder what you think about this. So he has this whole dream, whatever you want to call it, of the plane actually coming and he's getting lifted out and he's going to get treated and it, it all happened in time and thank God. But then what actually happens is he dies and is caught overnight, but his legs like hanging over and the bandages are all undone and the hyena's like outside the tent like making this noise. The whole time the hyena's been like stalking the tent because he like smells death, right? He's like, oh, something's cooking in the air fryer. It's not done yet, but I smell it. But what I don't like about this ending is that I feel like he could have accomplished the ending in the close third of that main character and instead we like pull away and the ending is the wife reacting to him dead on the cot. And I, I thought it was weird. I remember like reading it and just feeling like duped. Like all of a sudden we like head swapped and the reaction was from a woman that was reacting the way you might to your own husband's death. She's like horrified. But I felt like it was such a cheap ending after having heard what horrible things he thinks of her and how I, all I could think seeing her watch him like come to this realization that he died was like she's gonna be so much better off she's fine like she's sad right now but like I don't know I was just like is that supposed to be the takeaway that she's horrified by the death I don't know I thought that the hyena was he was kind of trying to incorporate the hyena as a symbol okay. of like the dying you know just yeah. like the vultures were at the beginning yeah he's like, like dying yeah exactly and I also read the ending more as kind of a um a coda so that we know what's happened like we know yeah. the reality of the situation yes it's like a little more than that yeah <laughs> just like we need to know that he re- actually he didn't go to Kilimanjaro he died yeah Yes. This is all a hallucination or the last misfirings of neurons. And then I guess if you, you wanted to, you could connect it with her kind of the tragedies of her life with the loss of her son and her first marriage. Yeah. And that kind of stuff was like, oh, no, not another one. And then that dream she had seemed yeah. just like a just a detailed dream to me, more of just like where her mind is, you know, as a character. You right. know? When I read this, like this is what published in the in Esquire in 1930s. You know, if I was the Esquire editor, I might have said, like, we can still know what happened without you jumping into her head. Because, like, this sentence here, it's like, outside the tent, the hyena made the same strange noise that had awakened her, but she did not hear him for the beating of her heart. So we're very much, like, in her head, right? Couldn't this have, like, been tweaked so slightly as to show us, like, her discovering the body, but not necessarily, like, her mental state? Like, we could see it through her shouting, Harry, oh, Harry. Versus, like, and then she had this dream. And when she woke... Like, we can still see her seeing this. But, like, why do I have to know that, like, she can't hear the hyena because, like, her heart is racing? I I just, I felt cheated by, I know, I I totally understand what you're saying about this ending needed to be this way. And and I figured by the end, that's what this was aiming for, you know, because this, like, vision that he's having or whatever it is, is, like, becomes a little more and more outlandish. And you're like, wait a second, is this real? So we have to know he died. Might just be an expression of her feelings, you know? I know, I just... Like, the reality of it. Honestly, as a narrative moment, it, to me, it's just a confirmation of what really happened. Yeah. I don't know why I was so like upset by it, except that I think <laughs> Hemingway is such a dick. It is odd that Hemingway himself, and like there's a famous letter to F. Scott Fitzgerald where he he said, you know, you don't need that last line. Maybe it wasn't the letter. Uh, there was a famous letter about you need to write what's true. Anyway, Hemingway gave the advice of like cutting the last line of something that Fitzgerald had written. I think this is how the story goes. And the idea was that like, you leave that unsaid because the rest of the story already said it. You're trying to like summarize it. You don't need to. And this to me, it's odd for Hemingway to add this coda because I feel like it should just be implicit in the rest of the story. Like he died on that cot. So there might, maybe he's trying to do something more, but I don't know what it is. It's probably if, if anything to me, it's just, 
just saying something about her. But I don't know what that would be except for her emotional state, which seems to be what's being expressed here because it starts in her dream. She's like unhappy with her father and then yeah. her um, her daughter's, you know, it's something about her daughter and her family. She's thinking about her previous family before Harry and then she wakens to him being gone and she's upset by it. That seems to be all it is. <laughs> Which, again, it seems like an odd way for Hemingway, the guy who's always lauded as the iceberg guy, 10% above the surface, to have that. But for whatever reason, he thought it was necessary for this one. Maybe the the editors of Esquire were like, did he die? And he's like, oh, I guess I got to add this shit in so they know. I, when I was like uh, writing up my little notes and, you know, we're talking about this exercise of like, how could you write like Hemingway? I wrote like a line of dialogue. I wrote, oh, darling, you rat. And isn't that like how they talk to each other throughout this? They're like, oh, darling, you curmudgeon. Oh, you swine. Oh, how I love you. However, biting insult, you know? It's funny. I think people really did talk this way because you get yeah. this kind of tone of conversation and Hemingway, I mean, you get it in Fitzgerald, you get it in like a lot of those those writers around that time. But it does seem, it just feels like augmented somehow. <laughs> yeah, because I think, I don't know if this is accurate, but it seems like it's like high like high society gets away with talking That's to each other. probably what it is. Yeah, it's like it's this, an affectation like, is what it is. Yeah, it feels fake because these are people we wouldn't have associated with. There's definitely people all over the world at that point that were like actually calling each other horrific things and men. It. When you read the writers from the Harlem Harlem Renaissance, you don't read this kind of dialogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, darling, you rat. I wanted to mention, thinking about Hemingway's style. Yeah. One of his famous rules was like no adjectives, no adverbs. And I think that we're given that rule sometimes as writers without reflection. But this is like on the second page, but after a bunch of dialogue, which, you know, people talk the way they talk. So adjectives make sense in, in dialogue. But this is just a, one of the first paragraphs of narration. It says, he lay then and was quiet for a while and looked across the heat shimmer of the plain to the edge of the bush. There were a few Tommies that showed minute and white against the yellow and far off he saw a herd of zebra white against the green of the bush. This was a pleasant camp under big trees against a hill with good water and close by a nearly dry water hole where sand grouse flighted in the mornings. You know, there are adjectives in there, right? And I think <laughs> instead of just using the blanket, no adjectives, no adverb kind of advice, it would help be helpful to like actually dig into how he uses adjectives, like when they do show up and why. Not necessarily just a blanket prescription against them. It's you use them in very specific ways because he calls it a pleasant camp. This was a pleasant camp under big trees. Like, what would you write instead of pleasant camp without an adjective? Yeah, there's no encompassing noun that has that idea in it, you know, right. And when you mentioned the Hemingway, like rules for writing based on journalism, I tried to look them up. I didn't see the one about like adjectives, like right off the bat, but I know that that is something that like is, you know, obviously like lacking in his work. And maybe he's just, he's like sparing in the sense that he knows that maybe there's, there's not a noun that would otherwise convey that. So he knows it's time to use an adjective. Whereas like in certain kinds of writing, you find people like describing everything. And we talk about how it's like almost like a red herring. It's like, why are you pointing out this detail? Why are you telling me right yeah, now that this yeah. main character's coat is red? 
with dots. Like, do I need to know that? Because it's like ingrained in my mind. And instead, right there, he's like, it's a pleasant looking camp. Maybe we're <laughs> supposed to think like, aside from the game green, nothing's wrong. <laughs> and he calls him a pleasant camp under big trees. <laughs> Weak. Esquire at that point was like, listen, uh, this guy, he doesn't like edits. It's a take it or leave it situation. Boys, what do we want to do? But it works. I mean, it, you don't need to fancy it up, right? It yeah, works. you don't need to fancy it up. And you don't want to say under trees. So. Yeah. <laughs> So I think people overreact to the advice is my point. Like you, sure. If you actually pay attention to what Hemingway does with his own rules of writing, and he was a well-known to be a, a continual reviser, like he came upon that. It wasn't like it was just, he just left it there without thinking about it. He, right. he went back over it over and over and over and left big trees. So that was a decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So don't, uh, I wouldn't suggest that anyone try to emulate this guy anyway, but if you, if you are. <laughs> Maybe not the person personality yeah careful with the adjectives the, advice the hemingway style kind of dominated the 20th century in so many ways there you know there's reactions against it but there was also just this you read almost anything from 20th century until today you're gonna get hints of hemingway in it right so anyway, uh, back to my takeaway, which I had at the beginning, and you corrected me in terms of it being an unreliable narrator, but I think it's cool to kind of like explore reasons why your character could be having an episode <laughs> that isn't isn't totally accurate. And it might be drugs, or it might be death, or it might be like an illness. If you had COVID, you probably like had a day or a moment like this, right? Where you're like, oh, oh my God. But it's kind of cool when it's not like the point of the story necessarily to at the end reveal that it was all just a dream, you know? But it's cool in certain applications. I like that that takeaway more as a, like I would give that as just general advice. Is um, And so many writers, when you read workshop stories, just forget this. It's yeah. When you're in a perspective, we can only see what the character sees. We only sure. know what the character knows. If the character right. is affected mentally by something, dying, for example, or hallucinating yeah. by from drugs or whatever, then what we're going to experience being in their psyche is going to be affected by that too. Yeah. You know, we can't step out of it as experiencers, as readers of the right. story. And, um, you know, there's so many times in the writer, you know why they do it because they, they so want to get yet they want to make they want to clarify something you know like he saw a seven-toed frog falling from a tree it's like hey that's not real he's just having hallucinations it's like no 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 we can figure it out yeah right 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 we know yeah we're if in you're doing head. it well enough yeah find some other way to do it don't tell us um on the sly or give us information that another character is getting stick sure. to the same same one because that's part of the uh that's part of the journey of fiction it's like experiencing the world through somebody else's right. eyes through somebody else's capacities to experience things as affected as they may be <laughs> yeah Right. Uh, what's your takeaway, John? Uh, my takeaway is I kind of suggested it earlier, but is basically I feel like not enough writers read enough, or at least people in the like in the workshops that we've been like you got to read. And if you get some rules from a book about how to write, read to see how they actually come out in actual stories, like the Hemingway style that everyone tries to adopt. I'm sure people get the rules without ever having read a word of Hemingway. You know, especially like he was writing writing literally a hundred years ago now. So you should read it. 
yeah. and see how it works in real life, you know? And then maybe you can like give yourself a pass for writing the big tree when you, <laughs> when you get through your manuscript. <laughs> well, I think it's a pretty strong. <laughs> well, you know, but the other stuff about his, um, with the uh, stream of consciousness stuff, you don't usually think of Hemingway as being that kind of stream of consciousness writer, but he did do it. He did it in this story. So the more you can read, the more you can experience different ways of implementing styles, different styles, different kinds of um, mental states that can be depicted. Right. You know, we did this one is a, a story of somebody dying in their hallucination. We also did the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which was oh, all yeah. a hallucination as well. In the face of death. In the face. Exactly. In the moments of dying, like in between being alive and dying, what happened? But just reading so you can see the way in which other writers are doing those things and you just give it's not merely as a teaching thing, but it gives you ideas of stories to tell as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I've ever thought to myself, I'm going to write about a character and, you know, facing death. Oh, I used to do that when I was in high school all the time. I don't know why. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash why is this good podcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at NaplesWritersWorkshop.com.